Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. This is Dr. Dan. The United States is not a democracy. Democracy is mob rule, where 51% of the people control everything. The majority, even by one vote, makes all the rules for everyone. Freedom of choice and individual freedom do not exist. The United States is a constitutional republic in which the natural law rights of the minority, even a minority of one single person, are protected by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, no matter what the majority wants. If I said that only a constitutional republic guarantees individual freedom, however, one might reasonably ask, what are the characteristics, rules, regulations, and laws of our constitutional republic that secure freedom for individuals? Our Constitution and Bill of Rights is a signed contract between 13 sovereign states that created a federal government to perform a limited number of tasks best performed jointly on behalf of the states. The Constitution, as the operating manual for the federal government, established the three co-equal branches of government, specified how each was to operate, and defined their relationship to each other. The Bill of Rights, however, is critically important for the individual as it details in no uncertain terms the relationship between the federal government and the sovereign citizens of the sovereign states. Moreover, the Bill of Rights stipulates that the powers not granted to the federal government belong to the states and their citizens. Our victory in the War of Independence removed the yoke of tyranny from the shoulders of the colonists, and our nation's founders used the Constitution and the Bill of Rights to deter any future government from resurrecting any of King George's abuses of power. Here at Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum, from the very beginning, our credo has always been the right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated or regulated by the government is the moral and constitutional basis for individual freedom. To our founders, the totality of a person's property was his land and home, his possessions, the work of his hands, the ideas of his mind, and his life itself. The basis for private property protection 
goes back to the Ten Commandments. Prohibitions against coveting, theft, bearing false witness, and murder, each of which steals some portion of a person's personal property. Our discussion, therefore, must rely on the multiple protections of private property found in the Bill of Rights that relate to the concept of due process and adherence to the law of the land. Here are some specific portions of the Bill of Rights that deal with these issues. Amendment 4, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Amendment number five, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. This is the basis for eminent domain, and obviously very important for us. Amendment 6. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel in his defense. In a dictatorship, none of those protections exist. The government has no obligation to uphold the natural law rights of any individual and will engage in any behavior, moral or immoral, to retain power. Tyrannical regimes rely on information of any kind provided by informants who might be your neighbor or even a former friend, relative, or colleague. Once you become suspected of crimes against the government, there is no Bill of Rights to protect you. When the police show up at your door at 2 a.m., you will not be told the nature of your crime. Your apartment will be searched, destroyed, and anything of value stolen. You will be taken to a secret prison, interrogated, probably tortured, and most likely either imprisoned under harsh conditions or killed. So here I have outlined two extremes. Total legal protection, as was originally written in our Bill of Rights, versus absolutely no protection. So where do we stand now in our country? As a textualist, I believe that the words of our Constitution mean exactly what was written and agreed to 230 years ago. The Fifth Amendment words, and I quote, No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, unquote, and the, quote, rights of the accused, quote, specifically spelled out in the Sixth Amendment, they are in no way ambiguous. Our due process protections are under assault, and in many ways, we already have become a police state. I am very concerned about provisions in RICO laws, FISA courts, 
the NDAA, and potential red flag Second Amendment laws that allow for the confiscation of private property by the order of a judge in an ex parte hearing based on the accusations of the police or even other citizens. When our government and judicial system is allowed to unilaterally suspend due process requirements in the Bill of Rights to achieve a political agenda, we are no longer a nation of laws. We are, in fact, no better than the dictatorships, past and present, whose violations of human rights we now decry. The end does not justify the means. And that is my opening monologue. My guest on Freedom Forum Radio is Daryl Brown. Daryl was a 1989 graduate of UNC Asheville, major political science and minor in history, and a 1992 graduate of the UNC Chapel Hill School of Law. He's practicing lawyer for 27 years, 11 years as a prosecutor, 16 years in private practice, criminal defense, 14 years as an attorney advocate for abused and neglected children in Cherokee and Clay Counties, and he is currently the attorney for Cherokee County, North Carolina, since April of 2018. Daryl Brown, welcome to Freedom Forum Radio. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Daryl, it is a pleasure to have you here. Uh, It's a pleasure to have your knowledge, your wisdom, to address an issue that I feel is critical to our individual freedom and the liberty that we enjoy in the United States. So let's start out by discussing the history of due process. What does it mean? What is a history? Let's start there. I like to think of the Constitution of the United States as being, in essence, a due process document in and of itself. Um, The Founding Fathers put it together, um, a form of government um, that is set out specifically within the body of the Constitution. And the individual states, for the most part, said, okay, this is fine, we like this, but without the Bill of Rights, we're not, we're not buying in. And the majority of the states or the colonies at that time, when they were putting the United States of America together, um, would not even consider Um, signing on to the Constitution and becoming part of the United States without some guarantees of individual rights. There are individual rights that are built into the body of the Constitution, but as you have so eloquently stated, um, the Bill of Rights is what protects each and every one of us from the government and what the government can do. You know, it's an interesting perspective, and uh, we know history, we appreciate history, and we need to learn from history. Uh, and that is, what you've said is really very critical. And that's why I said that the Constitution, the body of the Constitution, is like an operating manual for the federal government, is, is really what it is. That Bill of Rights, 
is so important for each of us because that's what dictates what is going to be the relationship between that federal government and the states and the individual citizens. Now, there is some discussion there that would say that uh, there are some people who felt that they didn't need the Bill of Rights because in that era, everyone believed in the Bill of Rights anyway. They had just gotten rid of King George, and the last thing anyone there wanted was another dictatorship running, ruling over him. But fortunately for us, uh, our founders were smart enough, and the people in, in the individual state ratifying conventions were smart enough to say, yeah, we all agree to these things, but boy, we better write them down, because someday in the future they may be called into question. We all know what happens when you assume. You don't assume anything, especially when dealing with an entity that is as powerful as the national government. Um, And that's what they were setting up, is a national government. Um, Most of the thinking that occurred before the United States was founded had much more to do with the individual states and how they wanted to run their own government. Georgia and Virginia were governed by two entirely different philosophies, um, and most certainly Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New York. Everybody had their own way of doing things. The concept of putting together a national government um, was a bit scary. Um, history tells us. And uh, it didn't take long after the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were approved before things started getting tested. And that's really true. And, and I appreciate you saying that because that was the concept of our founders, was that if you lived in Massachusetts and you didn't like the way things were going, you didn't like the way the government of Massachusetts were doing things, well, You could certainly move to Connecticut or Virginia or Georgia or one of the other colonies or states and uh, maybe find a home there that was run uh, by a government more in line with what you wanted. That was really the concept. And as you know, and you were about to say but didn't quite say, is that that Constitution limited the federal government. It was so scary that they said to the federal government, I got 18 things that you can do. Everything else really belongs to the states and their citizens to accomplish. Uh, yes, sir. And it's, I find it interesting that it wasn't long after the Constitution was passed that the national government in and of itself, it was run by the Federalists at the time, 1798, you had the Alien Act and the Sedition Act which was basically forged out of fear of immigrants. Um, And that is something that exists today. Um, It's nothing new under the sun. Um, In in 1798, um, the Alien Acts allowed for summary deportations. Um, There was a fear of immigrants. They... um, In that particular act, they also uh, extended the time that anyone was eligible to vote. Even if you became a citizen, they extended it from five years to 14 years. There was some real fear that was going on there. Um, The Sedition Act, 
a little bit terrifying when you 10 years earlier were worried about the first, and I repeat, the first amendment. The Sedition Act said that there would be no public opposition to the government. You're overruling the primary, the primary part of the Bill of Rights, which is your ability to be able to say, United States government, you're going too far. And it's what's interesting about the, the Alien and Sedition Acts is that was the first test of nullification with the Virginia and the Kentucky resolutions. Uh, and that is, a, that is a subject of a whole discussion. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the Constitution and the federal government that was created by it and not a party to it, the, the federal government, uh, that Constitution was a contract among 13 sovereign entities. And as a, voluntarily, as a contract that was voluntarily entered into by 13 sovereign entities, any one of those entities had the right to oppose what the, what the federal government did, which was, as I said, the creation of not a party to the Constitution. So one of those entities had three choices. If the federal government did something it didn't like, and that was nullification, interposition, or secession. Secession, as far as I'm concerned, was and still is completely legal, as, and as anyone in a contract can do. If you don't like the way things are going, you can opt out. You may have to pay a price one way or the other. You may have to negotiate a leaving. However, if you and five friends form a corporation – and five years down the line, things aren't going the way you thought they should be, you can opt out. And that's what secession is. Nullification means you just say, I'm not gonna, I am not going to comply with what you told me to do. And, of course, interposition means you pass your own laws that block the effect of the law that you don't want to follow. So that's a very important concept. That's the concept of having 13 individual sovereign entities creating a government that was only supposed to do 18 things, uh, the, uh, the enumerated powers in Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution. Uh, and that's what you get. So that kind of history is very important, and the Alien Sedition and Sedition Acts were the first test of that concept. There are more times in history when there are emergency situations that cause a interruption, for lack of a better way to put it, of due process. We see those things. Somebody in 1798 decided that the influx of immigrants from England and Ireland and France was an emergency, and the Alien and Sedition Acts were a response to that perception. Whether it was or whether it was not really doesn't matter. It's that there was that perception. Then we get to the, uh, we get to, as you mentioned, secession. At that point in time, there was a rebellion. And under Article One, Section 9, rebellion or invasion allows suspension of habeas corpus, which is a very, very important due process right. Um, 
it, that wasn't the end. Uh, President Lincoln, of course, did that. Um, and then we get on to um, we get on to World War One. Uh, World War One in nineteen seventeen, the Espionage Act, um, which restricted the first First Amendment rights, and it was actually upheld by the Supreme Court. Um, that was under the Wilson administration. And then, of course, in World War II, there is there is no question that the internment of Japanese, German, and Italian Americans, regardless of their allegiance, only their heritage was considered. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The rights to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. We all right this morning. Thank <laughs> you.